would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this evening. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we study His Word together. Our Father, we thank You for the inerrant and infallible truth of Your Word. May You write its truth deep within our hearts. May we humble ourselves not only this day, but always when we come to Your Word, acknowledging our need for the work of Your Spirit to help us to illuminate our eyes and ears, that we might see uh, with greater need and with greater depth uh, the work of our Savior for us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, If you'll recall, the book of Mark uh, as a whole is divided nicely into two different acts, if you will. Uh, The focus in Act 1 is all about who Jesus is. We could say that the emphasis there is upon the person of Christ. With the latter portion of Mark, that second act, Act 2, being upon the work of Christ. That is what he came to accomplish. And it's that first act that climaxes there in chapter 8 in verse 29 with Peter's confession. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Christ. That is, you are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the anointed one from on high. You are the one who has come to redeem God's people. And as soon as Peter makes this confession of the identity of Christ, Mark records for us a shift in Jesus' emphasis of public ministry. Now, it's not a shift in purpose. Uh, As we heard this morning, Jesus came for the purpose from the very beginning to die as a substitute for sinners. It was not as though at some point in Jesus' earthly ministry he had some sort of an epiphany, a messianic consciousness in which he awoke to a greater purpose that he didn't have before, but rather the emphasis that Mark places uh, recording from the life of Jesus is an increased focus upon that purpose for which he came. And so from this point on, every time that Jesus speaks about his coming suffering, death, and resurrection, each time that he speaks, he does so with greater clarity and with greater emphasis upon what he has come to do. And as Jesus sets his gaze upon the cross, there is a simultaneous emphasis upon instruction to his disciples on what discipleship is all about. The way that Sinclair Ferguson puts it is that the disciples sense that his commitment required their commitment. And so while Jesus fixes his eyes upon the cross, he is helping his disciples to see the full extent and the demands of discipleship in their own lives. We could put it like this. Let Jesus' messianic, kingly work necessitates that his followers submit to that kingly rule in their own lives. Now, we've just come off of our annual missions conference. We have the reminder and the banner behind me. There might be a tendency for us when we hear from just some of the missionaries that we support, there might be this tendency for us to think that there are different levels of disciple. There are the regular disciples like you and me, and then there are the super disciples like the missionaries whom we support. Those who would be so bold as to go around and ask folks to give them money. That's a difficult thing to do. 
those that would venture out to learn a new language and to study a new culture, leaving familiar surroundings to go into new lands for the spread of the gospel. And while there are certainly, of course, different callings for those who belong to the Lord Jesus, but this calling of discipleship in which we are called to serve the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength is not something that is just for the super disciple. Because there is no super disciple. There's just disciples of Christ. And that is a calling that is true for us all, no matter where the Lord may call us to serve Him. And if we look back just briefly in chapter 8, verse 34, just a few things that Jesus has said so far about discipleship. We read there, after Peter's confession and then subsequent rebuke, that Jesus says to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or in chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus says that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And later in that chapter, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now, all of these things, again, are just helping us to grow, to understand as disciples the full extent the full scope of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. And so it's in this context, in this setting, that Jesus continues to instruct His disciples as He has this encounter with the Pharisees uh, here, beginning in verse 1, chapter 10. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to Him again. And again, as was His custom, He taught them. And Pharisees came to him, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He asked them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now before we give our attention to the particular area of instruction that Jesus offers to the Pharisees and to the disciples about marriage, there are several things that I think are important that we give our attention to about the way that Jesus handles the Word of God and the way that He speaks of His own authority. And therefore, how 
his understanding of God's word, how his own authority helps us in our own study of Scripture. So let's first start with Jesus' general authority as Mark records it for us here in this passage. We read that the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. But as Mark narrates, it's not a question that they want an answer to. It's just a question that is meant to trap him. Now, why would the Pharisees trap Jesus? Well, we know that they hate him, but why do they hate him? What is it about Jesus that they don't like? Well, they view him as a threat to their own authority. They view him as a threat to their own, their own position of power and influence that they have built. They see him as a threat to their entire religious system. Because in their understanding, favor with God comes through their own moral adherence to the law. But Jesus, from the very outset of his public ministry, has been proclaiming very boldly and frequently, of course, that it is the gospel alone, faith and repentance, that makes one right with the Lord. They see Jesus as a threat, and so they want him removed. And that is the purpose for them setting this trap. Well, what is the test? What is the trap that they set for Jesus? Well, if you remember earlier in the gospel narratives, it is John the Baptist who spoke out very boldly against Herod's marriage to his brother's sister. And as a result of John's uh, commitment to speak out against Herod, he was, of course, executed for that. Well, now Jesus is in the territory of Herod, and so the Pharisees reason to themselves, let's trap him in the same way. Let's get him to speak out against Herod so that he'll be handed over, imprisoned, and killed. And so it's important to keep in mind that when they ask Jesus this question, they don't really want an answer. It's more, again, of sort of an accusation, a trap, because they already think they know the, an- the answer, and they have no interest in listening, no interest in being teachable. Now, let's, let's pause here for a moment and consider the way in which we might, in our own lives, approach the authority of God. Are there, perhaps, areas in your life where you, too, have the same attitude as the Pharisees? Perhaps the way that you ask questions of those that God has placed in authority over you. Certainly, this speaks to children, but not only to children. Not really asking because you want an answer, but asking with an antagonistic spirit. Or perhaps as you study God's word and you hear some of the claims of discipleship in your own life, that you are to love the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That all other relationships are comparatively nothing compared to the commitment that you are to have to the Lord. And you look at the full extent and demands of discipleship in your own life and you think, that is That's just way, way too intrusive. And so you have a sort of a questioning spirit that keeps his word at the periphery of your life. Or maybe you just don't like the circumstances that God has brought into your life. Relationships or conflicts that you experience at work. Um, Any sort of perhaps uh, physical ailments that you might experience. And so you turn to the Lord asking why. Not why because you really want an answer, but why because you think you know better how those circumstances ought to be in your life. And so you can ask in a spirit of humility with a desire to be taught, which of course is right and appropriate. A desire to have your heart shaped and molded by the truth of his word. Or you can ask with an antagonistic spirit because you assume that you already know the answer. 
or perhaps you want to justify your behavior or perhaps alleviate your conscience. And if you wanted to, you could give probably thought and write any number of questions and pose those to any authority over you and make those in authority over you look foolish so that you could then dismiss those authorities that have been placed over you in order to alleviate your own conscience. We see it clearly in the Pharisees, and we see it to the point where they justify even striving to put Jesus to death. But do we see it in our own lives? And so as we come to the truth of God's Word, may we come in humility. May we come with a commitment to the authority of God's Word and a conviction that His Word is sufficient to speak to all of life. And come with a willingness to be challenged. Come with a willingness to change. Be willing to allow the truth of God's word to bring great conflict into your heart and mind. For if you're reading it with clarity, certainly that will be the result. And allow your heart and mind to submit to his truth. And so the Pharisees want to talk about this issue of divorce in order to trap Jesus. And we'll come back to this more in a minute. But what Jesus does is by asking them a question, is pushing them to the foundational commitment within their own heart. Because you see, to the degree that we are not submissive to the lordship of Christ, to that degree we are bowing to the lordship of something or someone else. And so this is at the heart of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's one of an ultimate commitment, we could say, a foundational view of reality and how God's word is going to inform them when they get to the realm of ethics. So that when we get to this issue of marriage and divorce, only if we have a commitment to the truth of God's word will we be able to make sense of marriage and divorce. And so in verses 13 through 16, you see when Jesus welcomes the little children to himself and says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter, He is saying, you see, come to me. Come with no agenda. Come with no claim to entitlement or demands. Come recognizing your neediness, your helplessness, your dependence, and delight yourself in the mercy of God. The only way to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, the only way to live according to the kingdom of God, is to come as a child. Come recognizing that nothing in life will make sense without a submission to his lordship. All thinking, all decisions, all relationships, everything in your life is to be redefined by your commitment to him. Again, as Ferguson points out, that children had no standing in Jesus' society. If they were to receive anything, it could not be on the basis of their present rights, but only as a gift. Similarly, if any of us is to receive the kingdom of God, it must be as a completely unmerited gift from God. If we do not receive the kingdom that way, like a little child, it will never belong to us. And so before there can be profitable dialogue about marriage, there must be a childlike approach on our part that looks in faith to the sufficiency of Scripture. And only then will anything like marriage make sense. Not only marriage, but anything. Nothing will make sense without such a commitment to the truth of God's Word. And so let's go on and look at the particular area of disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus knows the motives of the Pharisees, and as he typically does, he masterfully asks them a question, sort of turning the discussion around. 
you see, asking them, what does Moses command you? And the question of Jesus here is really interesting. What is commanded of you? That is, what are you called as God's people to do positively? What does God's word call you to do within the divine institution of marriage? Here's the whole Pentateuch before you. Where are you going to turn for instruction? And the response should have been, well, we ought to humbly delight in the wife of our youth. We ought to delight in God's good providence, recognizing that he is the one who brought this spouse into my life. They should have recognized that marriage is a picture of God's covenantal relationship to his people and is therefore binding. They could have turned to a number of places in Moses, but certainly they would have had in mind such places as Hosea chapter 2, where the Lord equates his covenantal relationship with his people to the marriage relationship. Their response instead is to go straight to the exception, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, there were basically two schools of thought when it came to uh, interpreting this passage from Deuteronomy. There was the more liberal approach, which looked at Deuteronomy 24 and simply isolated portions of that text to make it read, if she finds no favor in his eyes, he writes her a certificate of divorce. And so this approach said that the husband can basically dismiss his wife for anything that brings him displeasure. You've asked your wife a number of times not to cook you that particular meal, and she's done so again, and she has caused displeasure in your eyes. You can dismiss her. Or he might be at the market, and he might see a woman who has fairer eyes than his own wife and might be allowed to dismiss his wife to pursue another. The more conservative school said that divorce was only allowable if there were some sort of marital unfaithfulness. But notice that Jesus says, This law, in Deuteronomy 24, was given to you because of your hard-heartedness, because of the sinfulness that you brought into God's good creation. And so when Jesus asks, What does Moses say? They go straight to the point in Scripture that exposes their own sin in their desire to break the marriage covenant. Jesus' response is to return to Genesis chapter 2 to the foundation, to the very beginning of the institution of marriage. Their focus is upon divorce, the sinful consequences of man. Jesus' desire is to return to the beginning, to the design of God himself. And just as there was a great deal of confusion in the time of Jesus over the design and purpose of marriage, it pretty much goes without saying that there is an equal amount of confusion in our own time when it comes to marriage. I mean, for one thing, our culture says that marriage is an outdated institution. You hear things like this all the time. Well, marriage is fine for other cultures, and it was fine for our own culture, but we are much more enlightened now. We have moved beyond that archaic institution. We can simply cohabitate, and we can decide for ourselves what that level of commitment looks like. And, of course, this is based upon the assumption that marriage is a cultural or human institution simply created to keep order in society. So the reasoning goes, we don't need marriage any longer because it kept order in society when we needed it, but we have other institutions around today that do the same thing. And so we don't need it any longer. 
And this is why Jesus, and this is why we as well, must go back to Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is a divine institution created by God. And therefore, as creator, he alone has the right to say what is acceptable and what isn't. Because only the one who is created has the right to define and tell us the purpose of that which he has created. Our culture goes on to attack those of us in our isolated existence within the church who would say that sex within the context of marriage is the only acceptable place. We're told that such thinking is simply restrictive and controlling. The reasoning goes we have our public sphere of life and we have our private sphere of life. And no one can regulate the private and tell me what to do. I must be allowed to follow the strongest desire that I have, the strongest urge within. It's my body and I can do whatever I want with it. And no one can tell me otherwise. But again, if Jesus is the king over your life, then he has the right to inform, to regulate, to dictate every portion of your life. You must live the way that he says to live, not the way that you think left to your own reasoning. And so when it comes to this particular arena of life, what discipleship means is that you give to the Lord your desires, your body, and you trust in the Lord's goodness and design. God has created marriage. He has defined its purpose. He alone has the right to regulate its practice. Now, here's a common question that comes up, and we find it coming up more and more frequently, even within the church. Why do I need to wait until marriage to have sex? I don't understand why. I understand that the Bible tells me that, but I don't understand why, and I want to hear a good reason. And if I don't hear a good reason, a reason that makes sense to my reason, then I really don't have to listen. But think of it like this. In Romans chapter 8... Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And note the argument that Paul uses here, you see, from the greater to the lesser. If he has done so much in redeeming you from sin and captivity, then why would he hold back now something that is good? And so it's a matter of belief and trust. Trusting in your heavenly Father who is good and loving and kind. And yet we reason, here's something that's good, you're telling me that I can't have it, and I'm just supposed to trust in you. What's well, the lie of the garden, isn't it? Can you really trust God? How do you know that He's good? You see the fruit, and it's pleasing to the eye and desirable to have, and so you reason that God does not want you to have that which is good. Someone has illustrated it like this. You see, when we reason that God is just holding out something that is good, that he doesn't want us to have, we have a huge problem. It's like saying, I've entrusted Jesus with the eternal destiny of my soul. He is my Savior who has redeemed me for all of eternity, and my life is in his hands. But I can't just wait a few years to have sex. It makes no sense. It's like saying, I'll entrust you to come and watch my children for the weekend while my wife and I go out and celebrate our anniversary, but I don't really trust you, so I'm going to take my $50 watch and hide it somewhere in my dresser. Do you see the inconsistency when we question the Lord who loves us and who has redeemed us? 
But instead of allowing the Pharisees, you see, to focus upon divorce, what Jesus does is go back to Genesis to help us understand, again, that if we are not informed and driven by God's word, we simply will not be able to have a marriage the way that God intended. First, we see in verse 7 that marriage is a covenant promise. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And as a covenant promise, marriage is primarily an act of the will, not an emotion. And this is critical because most people around us say that the foundation of any relationship and the foundation of marriage itself is love. And love is defined in the world around us primarily as an emotion, not an act of the will. All you have to do is read any poem, listen to any song, watch any movie or any television show, and love is treated almost like an illness. You can't help it when it comes. You never know when it might come. You never know what it might do to you, and you never know when it's going to leave. <laughs> and you know what? You can't be responsible, so don't feel obligated to hold a commitment with someone when the feeling of love takes hold of you and when it leaves. And what about when someone else comes along who is your soulmate? Well, surely you should not feel obligated to stay with the one whom you don't love any longer. And so it's a very romanticized notion of marriage. But clearly God's design is to define marriage as a promise. And as a promise, then it is something that is permanent in nature. It's not based upon feelings of attraction, but it's based upon a covenant. It's based upon a promise. Okay, well, biblical love certainly doesn't sound very romantic, does it? But if you know your emotions at all, then why would you want to define it any other way other than the way that Scripture does? And if marriage is based upon a promise, then we ought to expect a love between a husband and wife to grow over the years, not to fade into oblivion. It's a love and a commitment over time that becomes stronger and better. And it's possible because of God's design. And so the question that we ought to ask ourselves, especially husbands who are here, is what about your own marriage? Is there increased maturity over the years? Is there greater love for your spouse today than there has ever been? And so marriage is a promise. Marriage is a covenant. And we also see in verse 8 that marriage is a relationship of intimacy. In marriage, the husband and wife become one flesh. And certainly this is talking about physical intimacy, but it's talking about much more than that. We could say there is an emotional, spiritual intimacy that simply cannot be explained in many ways outside of the marriage covenant. And so again, where our culture sees sex outside of marriage as the norm, we need to understand that God is the one who has designed it and who has designed that most intimate act within the context of marriage because of the intimate relationship that it is. And sex outside of marriage might feel good, it might be desirable, but it is essentially saying, I want the benefits of that relationship without the commitment of that relationship. I want what you can give me. I want to use you to gratify my desires. But sex within the context of marriage says, I have already made this commitment to you. This relationship is permanent in nature, and therefore that level of intimacy flows as a result of that commitment. Now, another question I think that is important for us to address, something that 
uh, unfortunately, again, comes up with quite frequency even within the ministry of the church. And that is, what about marrying someone who is not a believer in Christ? What about dating someone who isn't a Christian? I mean, after all, isn't that the greatest way to bring someone to come Christ, to, to come to Christ? Sort of evangelistic dating? What about this person that I seem to have so much in common with? This person that I'm attracted to and I love and we seem to get along, so what's the big deal? Again, a question that comes up frequently in the church. But remember, if intimacy goes beyond the physical to the spiritual, then certainly it does matter. If discipleship to Christ is foundational for all of life, then how can you have a relationship with someone to that level who has a completely different foundation for life? Some Christians foolishly convince themselves that it's okay to marry an unbeliever, that it's okay to date someone who is not in Christ. But you see, it's really one of the most selfish things that you could possibly do. You are saying that the eternal destiny of that person whom you supposedly care so much about doesn't really matter. All that really matters is that you enjoy spending time with him. All that matters is how much fun you have together and how he makes you feel. But if that person doesn't know Christ, then you're basically using him or her as an object for your pleasure. And he will eventually be discarded into hell for eternity. And when you toy with that relationship, you are saying that you care nothing for his standing before God, but only what he can do for you. Because of the different foundation that your life is built upon, when a crisis comes, and you know that a crisis will come, how are you going to resolve it when you have a completely different place that you are going to look to for answers? And so to date an unbeliever is simply to play with fire. It is not honoring to the Lord. There is nothing about it that is pleasing to him because it is absolute self-centeredness to the core. Now, as we have opportunity to instruct our covenant children, we ought to speak boldly. We ought to speak frequently into their lives. And I might be so bold as to say, when a young man or lady brings someone to the church that you don't know, introduce yourself to them. Ask if they love the Lord Jesus. And do so in such a way that communicates love, not judgment. And believe me, the young people will be appreciative of that. Encourage our covenant children to wait for the Lord's timing, to seek his guidance in prayer, and to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to seek one who does the same. And finally, the only way that you can have a marriage the way that God has designed is to understand what marriage is a picture of. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes from the same passage that Jesus does in Genesis chapter 2. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so marriage, you see, is a picture of God's covenantal relationship and faithfulness to the church. It's a picture of the union that our Savior shares with us, the bride of Christ. Just as creation, you see, begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve in the garden, history ends with a marriage between Christ and His church. In Revelation chapter 19, we read, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, one of the most enjoyable parts of pastoral ministry, and I'm sure Pastor Mike Williams would affirm this, is officiating at a wedding ceremony. And one of the reasons, among many, of why it's such a joy is that we get a perspective that no one else has. We get to see as everyone stands and turns and watches the bride, as the doors of the church are open, we get to see not only the bride but the groom and his response and his reaction and hear the joy in his voice and see the anticipation in his eyes. And just as the bride waits for those church doors to swing open that she might behold the face of her bridegroom and see the joy and the expectation on his face, so the church, clothed in the radiant righteousness of Christ, ought to long, ought to cause us to long to see his face. And so what we read in Ephesians 5 is that if you are in the Lord Jesus by faith alone, then you are already united to him. You are already the bride of Christ. You already have his divine favor now and for eternity. He has united himself to you and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And you are loved beyond description. And it is a love that will never fade. That even in a million years from now, when time has has no meaning anymore, you will still be loved beyond comprehension. And as we meditate upon the glorious reality of the gospel, you see, only then will we be enabled to have a marriage the way that God has intended. And it is only the gospel that can do this. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for that divine institution of marriage. And we ask, O Lord, that our homes would be places in which Christ is preeminent, in which husbands and wives long to seek your face, and in which love between husband and wife uh, continues to grow and to thrive as the years go on. And as such a commitment between husband and wife matures over the years. And may those of us be, who are married be great examples, O Lord, to our younger covenant children. Uh, and may they look uh, to you uh, and to your faithfulness and provision to them. We thank you most of all this evening for the glorious news of the gospel, uh, for that wedding supper of the Lamb that awaits us, those of us who are in the Lord Jesus. And may we long with anticipation that great day, recognizing that we already are the Lord Jesus's, that we have been purchased with his shed blood, and that we belong to him already. And may our lives reflect such an identity and such a union with him. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.